Well, let's get going. Let's get crack a lacking here as we begin our next course seminar on Baptist Foundations. Uh, so, just by way of reminder, what we've covered so far what is a church? What is church membership? Why that's important? Uh, essentially, church is made up of believers only. And why do you need to have membership? Lots of reasons. Um, uh, church ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and how baptism is the entry right into the church and Lord's Supper is the continuing right within the church. Both of these things serve to protect uh, and uh, affirm regenerate church membership, which is really one of the hallmarks of Baptist church life. Then we talked about church discipline. We talked about church officers, elders, and deacons. And now we're going to talk about church governance, namely elder-led congregationalism. That is a bit of a mouthful, elder-led congregationalism. If you don't have the notes, I encourage you to grab them on the back there. But essentially, just by way of introduction, if we were, if, you know, as we think about last week, Last week, it's clear that the elders have authority in the local church. Otherwise, why would Hebrews 13 say, submit to your leaders and follow them? Why would Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 5 to the elders, and he says, exercise oversight willingly, not under compulsion uh, and kindly, essentially in a way that reflects uh, leader, Jesus shepherding and leadership over the church. And so leaders clearly have authority, but we've also seen significant signs of the congregation having authority. We've seen that in Acts chapter 6, wherein it's the congregation that actually chose the deacons that served in the church. And we've also seen that in Matthew 18, in passages about church discipline, where ultimately it's not the elders that cast someone out of membership in the local church. It's the church itself. It's the entire congregation that has the authority to do that, not just the elders. So what is the relationship? Uh, how do we make sense of these various passages that talk about the reality that there is real elder authority in local congregations, and then passages that also talk about real authority that that is in the congregation as well. What do we, how do we make sense of these? I would suggest to you the best way to make sense of them is what Baptists have historically referred to as elder-led congregationalism. So let me just give you a definition. Uh, a definition for elder-led congregationalism. And this week is going to be kind of just some foundational, like, biblical building blocks. And then we'll talk more next week uh, and, and tease it out some more, Okay. So I'm trying to put categories into your mind this week. So if you have questions, of course, I'll try to answer them. But don't worry, this week isn't the only week we're going to talk about this. I'm trying to build a bit of a, a biblical foundation for you first before we flesh it out and, and get to lots of interesting questions about the what and the how and the details, okay? So broad definition of elder-led congregationalism. Jesus has given the members of each local congregation final authority under his word over the doctrine, leadership, and membership of the church. Elders fulfill their biblical role in leading, equipping, and overseeing the congregation in fulfilling these responsibilities 
but the congregation still bears final authority. Okay? Those words are all carefully chosen, uh, so I'm going to read it again. Jesus has given the members of each local congregation final authority under his word over the doctrine, leadership, and membership of the church. Elders fulfill their biblical role in leading, equipping, and overseeing the congregation in fulfilling these responsibilities, but the congregation still bears final authority. Let's just tease this out and see this in some passages in God's Word. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 18? We're going to look at this in Scripture. And first, we're going to look at the, at the congregation's authority in relation to the membership of the local church. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is a familiar passage, and you have a movement of three steps, wherein there's an erring brother in some matter of sin or righteousness, and one brother or sister goes and calls that erring brother to repentance. If, that, if the brother repents, then the process ends. If not, it goes to two or three. They go to that brother uh, and call him to repentance. If that works, and by work, I mean the brother repents, then the process stops. If that doesn't work, then it's told to the whole congregation. And the whole congregation then encourages the brother, the erring brother or sister to repent. And if that doesn't work, then the congregation is the means by which that brother is excommunicated from the church, removed from membership. So, this tells us that ultimately the authority to exercise church discipline is lodged in the congregation as a whole. Does that make sense to you? I mean, it's really just right there. It's the congregation as a whole that removes an unrepentant brother or sister from membership. It is not merely a subset of the congregation, the elders, or a session or some body above the congregation, uh, it is the congregation itself that is charged under the authority of God's word to remove an erring brother. So who has the ultimate authority in regards to church discipline? The congregation, the church, okay? Now, look at 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians five is another well known passage. And I, I trust you know the situation. There was one who was um, having sexual relations with his mother in law. Paul is shocked, and they should be shocked, but they are not shocked. This type of heinous sin isn't even tolerated among the Gentiles. Um, praise God, that is still not tolerated among us in our current world, but who knows, we could get there. Um, but 
he says, uh, verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is another passage about church discipline, wherein an erring brother who's unrepentant is cast out of the church, and notice who is to do it. It's the gathered assembly. When you are assembled, it is the church gathered that has this responsibility to remove this one from the church, to remove him from membership, okay? And then also, just turn over, well, it's on my, in my Bible, it's turned over, it's just uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. He's giving the rationale for why this does need to be done, and he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Question there, who's the you? Who's the you there? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Who's the you? The congregation. It's the Corinthian church. Remember, this is written to a local church gathering at Corinth. And so we see in Jesus' words, we see in Paul's words, that the gathered congregation is to be the means and is the authority is the agent that removes someone from membership. By the way, church discipline is removing someone from membership. So when you say that the congregation has authority in discipline, what you're also saying is that the congregation has authority in membership. Discipline is just the back door of membership, okay? There's a front door of membership. So by implication, the congregation should be involved in membership. Does that make sense? Okay, now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 5. Uh, we don't know for sure, but likely, uh, Paul is about to speak to the congregation about receiving an erring brother that had been cast out. We don't know for sure, but likely it is this brother whom they had cast out that Paul had called them to cast out in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, we don't know that for sure, but it's likely. Uh, and then look at what Paul says in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What's he talking about there? The punishment of church discipline, the punishment of excommunication. This erring brother had been punished uh, that's not necessarily a bad word. I know we're like, ooh, is there any way we can phrase that positively? Uh, you know, no, it's just, it's punishment. Okay, uh, let's let the Bible speak and not squirm. Uh, this punishment inflicted by who? The, why do you say the congregation? The majority. It's not, it's... It's, it's not, it's, again, it's not an ecclesial authority above the congregation. It's, it's not a subset within the congregation, say elders. It's, it's 
It's the majority. It means the body came together, and the majority of the body deemed that this was this unrepentant. This was unrepentant sin. This sinner was not repenting. The other steps had been followed according to Jesus and what he told us to do. We need to remove this one from membership in hopes that he will repent. But we don't only do it in hopes that he would repent. We do it because the purity of the church must be protected. Because the gospel creates a pure people. The gospel creates regenerate church members. And regenerate church members don't give themselves consistently to sin. They walk in righteousness. And the church recognizes that. And so the church polices its own. And so again, it's just it's a it's a bit of a captain obvious thing. If he says the majority, uh, this punishment by the majority is enough, again, the authority to excommunicate one belongs to the gathered assembly. But then look what he tells them to do. The punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So how cool is this? It appears as though church discipline had a good effect upon this sinner, uh, this saint who was sinning, and he repented. And so Paul calls the church again. He's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, okay, look, the, the punishment inflicted by the majority was enough. It appears as though he has repented. Now I want you to receive him. Who's the you? The church. The church. Okay. I, you know, horse, dead. Uh, point is, you see that the membership, that, that, that the congregation has authority in matters of membership. Uh, we're talking about discipline here, but discipline is absolutely connected to membership because discipline is just the back door of membership, okay? So the church has authority, the congregation we see in Scripture, in Jesus and in Paul, has authority over membership. Okay, well, let's look at doctrine, uh, the New Testament, as you look at the New Testament, seems to say that the congregation, each local congregation, by the way, a hallmark of Baptist life, remember, is the autonomy of the local church. That's just the hall, one of the hallmarks of Baptist church, Baptist life. The autonomy of the local church, regenerate church membership. Baptism, actually, is not the main, believer's baptism is not the main hallmark of Baptist life. I would argue it's actually the third. First is regenerate church membership, autonomous local churches, and then believer's baptism because believer's baptism protects regenerate church membership, okay? See how these things are all weaved in together? It's not like just a smattering of random things that we're like, hey, here's a great idea. Uh, It it all kind of goes together. So I lost my spot. Okay, so the congregation also seems to have authority over matters of doctrine. Why do we say this? Well, one, just an observation. Almost all the letters in the New Testament, uh, save a few, are written to the elders of local churches. Wait a second. That's not right. Who, Who are almost all of the letters written to? The churches themselves. Paul, Paul, in doing that, is really letting us know that he expects and he assumes that churches themselves have significant authority and they need to police themselves. So I think the very fact that almost all the letters of the New Testament um, are written to churches, not 
just leaders, but churches, is significant. Then I would say, look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Galatians chapter 1. And actually, let's look at verse 6. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, who's the we there? Who do you think? But even if we, Paul's certainly including himself there, who else might he be including if he says, but even if we? Apostles, you okay? Apostles. Um, and, uh, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you, who's the you? I'm so encouraged that like all of you answered that, but I just didn't even hear the answer because uh, it, it seemed like you were speaking in tongues, so I need an interpreter. Um, the church, the local church, yes. Um, so now I say, if, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. This, this is a big deal. Paul tells this relatively young congregation. Galatians was written very early, okay? Galatians was written very early. Uh, all scholars agree on that. He is telling this young congregation, listen, listen. I, essentially, I know I'm your father in the faith. But if I visit you and I'm preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, you are to have nothing to do with me. You are to let me be accursed. In other words, you know, if your leaders don't preach the gospel, you congregation, get them out of there. Okay? So what do we see there? Tremendous responsibility placed upon the congregation in matters of doctrine. Paul assumes that the congregation is going to not only be responsible for its membership, Paul assumes that the congregation is responsible for its doctrine. Does this mean that leaders don't have a role in protecting and leading in doctrine? No. Please don't, don't too quickly move to either ors, okay? Let's just let the scriptures lie there. Paul tells the Galatian church, if I, an apostle, if Peter, if the Pope, if me, Brad, whoever, preaches a gospel that isn't the gospel, you, Galatian church, by extension, you, Redeeming Grace Church, have nothing to do with it. That assumes that you have authority vested in you that gives you the ability to have nothing to do with it. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and then also, if you just look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, his warning to the churches. He is warning the churches and upbraiding the churches, and that the churches themselves are tolerating false doctrine. And he basically just says, not cool, no muy bueno, you need to repent, okay? Um, he doesn't actually say no muy bueno, but it's the morning, and we're talking about Baptist foundations, so I just want to make sure you're still crack-a-lacking with me. All right, now, 
Let's talk about uh, leadership. The congregation also seems to have authority uh, in regards to its leaders. This is logically connected with the prior point. Because if the congregation is responsible for purity of doctrine, well, question, who's, who's the main person who's promulgating doctrine? Or who's the main group that's promulgating, teaching, shepherding doctrine? Pastors, elders, teachers, okay? So if the congregation is to make sure that its doctrine is pure, by implication, they need to make sure that her teachers are pure, okay? So there's just a connection here between the two. I think you also see this impulse um, in Acts chapter 6 when proto, these are proto-deacons, if you will, uh, the kind of the, the first um, sightings of, of deacons coming forth, you see the congregation being significantly involved in the selection and appointment of those deacons. The deacons were appointed and it pleased the whole congregation. The, the, the apostles at that point came to the church and said, you choose from among yourselves men who are full of wisdom, full of the Spirit. Um, they come to the congregation. The congregation selects certain men, and then it, it seemed good to everyone. I mean, you might think it's like us on a yearly basis when we send out to you the congregational surveys, and we kind of say, would you choose out from among yourselves those who you think, according to these scriptural requirements, are meeting the requirement of a deacon? And hey, would you choose out from among yourselves those whom you think are, are, might be qualified and appropriate to serve as elders? Would you, would you let us know who you're seeing? And then we, in our position of, of leadership in shepherding, we take those names. We may know certain things about certain people that you don't know, so we may not share every reason as to why we don't bring certain people back to you, but then we do bring others back to you, and then what do we do all together? We vote. We vote. We, you, you recognize you recognize who the Lord is calling among you to serve as a deacon and as an elder. By the way, just a spoiler alert. So currently, currently, according to our Constitution, that vote is what's called a member's advisory vote, okay? We actually do business very, uh, in a ver- very elder-led congregational way here at Redeeming Grace Church, okay? But there's a nuance in our Constitution that we honor, um, that, that we as elders are going to present to you in, in the near future that we change, which is part of the reason why we're doing this. Currently, when we vote on, say, deacons or elders, that's a member's advisory vote, and the elders have the final authority in that regard, Okay? So you vote, and essentially, we're not going to install someone as an elder or deacon if you're not in support of it, because <laughs> that's just bad leadership, okay? But according to the Constitution, we have the final authority. I think that just needs to be switched, okay? I think the vote itself needs to be binding, and the congregation is the one who has the final authority in regards to leaders, Okay? I think you see that from the pages of the New Testament. And that's what Baptists have historically done. This is really the, the building blocks of elder-led congregationalism, is that the congregation itself has the authority in regards to membership, doctrine, and leaders. Okay, um, And then also you see in 
Obviously, in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, when Paul says, don't receive me if I'm preaching a false gospel, that assumes that the congregation has this authority. And then also, I think you see in the necessity to rebuke elders publicly in front of the whole congregation if they err, uh, an important aspect of this as well. So, why do I share these with you? I share these with you just to say, you've probably seen these before, but I want you to see what I think is obvious in them, okay? That the congregation has an authority vested in itself in regards to discipline, a.k.a. membership, doctrine, and connected to that, leadership. Now, what undergirds these things? I think what undergirds these things is the keys of the kingdom. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. This may be a new concept for many of you. Matthew 16. We're going to read a passage. Now, there's lots going on here, so uh, help me and try not to get fixated in on one question. Uh, I'm I'm really trying to draw out some central truths out of this, not answer every question that you might have. Um, But I I will give some space for questions if we have some at the end. Uh, But Matthew 16, 13 through 20, uh, let's look at that, and let me read it for you. Read along with with me, Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, I want to pause there and I want to note to you, although Jesus asked the question, who, twice, he asks, who do people say that I am? And then he asks, who do you say that I am? So he asks who twice. I would, I would suggest to you that he's actually asking both a what and a who. He's asking what is a right confession concerning me? You know, who do people say that I am? He's asking what is a right confession of me? Okay? And then he's also asking who of you makes the right confession? What do people say that I am? In other words... What is a right confession? Who of you knows it? I think Jesus is asking both a what and a who. What's a right confession concerning the gospel? Who is a right gospel confessor? Who makes that right confession? Look at verses 16 through 20. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't that just awesome? Like, that is awesome. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, so what do you see in 16 through 20? Lots of things, but I want to keep us focused here pretty sharply. Number one, you see that Jesus is going to build his church on this rock. 
This rock is this confessor, Peter, who is making the right confession, believing the gospel. That's the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church. Peter is this confessor making the right confession. And in order to build his church, Jesus gives Peter, who represents the apostles as a whole, the keys of the kingdom. Okay? He gives him the keys of the kingdom, and he represents the apostles as a whole. And what do the keys do? You're like, I have no idea. It's okay. Um, They have to do with binding and loosing. You can just see that right there in the text, right? Everybody see that? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What What do those keys do? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Natasha? Yeah, it has to do with, I think, uh, so uh, so think about cords. Cords either either bind and and, and tie up and and put together. Uh, Loose uh, actually is going to refer to who's, who's who's not making the right confession, who's not a right confessor. Who is not part of the church? Um, and this will make sense in just a minute. That's a great question. What is binding and loosing? First of all, you're, you're, yeah, I love it. You're like, tell me. Um, but first of all, just see, it has to do with binding and loosing. The keys have to do with binding and loosing. Okay? Now, what is binding and loosing? It is the authority to declare with heaven's authority the what and the who of the gospel. What is the gospel and who has it? Another way to say it is, you know, it's the authority to say this is or isn't a right confession. And it's the authority to say this is or isn't a, uh, a true gospel confessor. Okay? Peter has made the good confession. Okay? Jesus gives him and the apostles the keys to bind and loose. And he's going to build his church on this. What are... What are the keys? They're they're the authority that Jesus vests in Jesus and the apostles to declare with heaven's authority, this is a right gospel confession or not. This is a true gospel confessor or not. Now, if that seems a little fuzzy, I think it'll get a little bit clearer if we turn to Matthew 18. Because Matthew 18 is going to help us flesh this out, and it's going to reveal that the keys are actually given to the gathered congregation not just the apostles. Matthew 18, we just read this, so it's fresh on your mind, and look at what it says again. If your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, now listen. Truly I say to you, whatever you, congregation, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
we have this binding and loosing language again. It's specifically in relation to church discipline and church membership. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. I'm about to hopefully blow your mind on this passage, and it's actually relatively simple, okay? It's relatively simple. This is church discipline. Church discipline is an exercise of the keys of the kingdom. Do you see that? Whatever's going on in church discipline, the, the either receiving or dismissing, is an exercise of the keys. How do we know that? Because as soon as he talked about church discipline, then he said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What the heck does that mean? It means we need to connect what just happened to this point. Church discipline is an exercise of the keys of the kingdom. Okay? So, what does that mean? It means the exercise of the keys of the kingdom is about acting with heaven's authority in removing a member. This member may have been making a right confession, but his life wasn't lining up with his gospel confession. And therefore, on the authority of Jesus, the church says, you are not a true gospel confessor. You are not a true gospel confessor. And we remove you from the church. Um, Which speaks with heaven's authority and he's out of the church, okay? It doesn't mean you make him an unbeliever. You're, you're, you just can no longer affirm his profession of faith, okay? Um, so, and notice that it's the entire congregation who is exercising these keys. It's the entire congregation who's exercising these keys. So what this means, let me, I, I th- so I can see all sorts of like, you know, dot, 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 you know, the thinking as someone's typing in their, in their text strand, like, right, thinking, 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 that's good. Let me just go back up for a minute. What just happened in church discipline was an exercise of the keys. So it means the church, the gathered church, has the keys of the kingdom. In other words, the church has the authority to receive members based upon a right gospel confession, And a life that lines up with that. And the church has the authority to remove someone from membership. Based upon either a wrong gospel confession. Or a life that doesn't line up with that gospel confession. The keys of the kingdom upon which Jesus will build his church. Are given to gathered congregations. Who have the authority to recognize. You are really a disciple. You make the right confession. You live the appropriate life. Therefore, we, on the authority of Jesus Christ, baptize you, bring you into the membership of the local church, and through church, that's how we exercise the keys on the front end, okay? And how we exercise the keys on the back end is if you let go of your gospel confession, believe heterodoxy, or if your life just goes crazy sideways and you don't repent, then we exercise the keys in removing you from membership, Um, Is this making a little bit of sense of the keys? I want to pause and give an opportunity for questions. Yes, Chris? Yeah.
Correct. Correct. Heaven has already determined what it is. His word is the authority. We are acting on the basis of his word, comparing his life to his word. And then on the authority of his word, we are just acting as his representative saying, yeah, lines up. Or no, doesn't line up. We don't get to create the rules. Okay? Um, We are like, uh, what would we be like? This is where... This is where my associate pastor Brad, who in his infinite creativity and analogies has better analogies than I do. Um, Yes, Brad, perfect. (laughs) When you're traveling and you go, you know, when you go to the U.S. passport, you you go to the country, they're not granting you your citizenship, they're recognizing, they're, they're affirming your citizenship by allowing you to do the things that a citizen does. Excellent. Can you say that one more time? I'll tie it up. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, it's like when you go, so when you're traveling back into the U.S., having traveled in a foreign country, you present your passport and they recognize it and allow you to enter and allow you to do the things a citizen does. Uh, they're not, that, that, that passport office is not granting you your citizenship but it is recognizing and affirming and endorsing your system. So, too, the church, on the authority of God's word, when you make a right confession and live in keeping with that confession, we are not granting your citizenship in the church of Jesus Christ. We are recognizing that you are a citizen of the church of Jesus Christ and bringing in the membership in our church. Does that make sense? But then if you act in a certain way that disqualifies you from membership, okay, then we revoke your passport, essentially. Uh, okay? Uh, does that make sense? Okay? John? So just looking at the seriousness of this, the decision that the local congregation, the local church makes, is also binding and loosing in heaven. It's not just us. This goes beyond us, right? It's really saying we are acting on heaven's authority. Right. We are more than just representatives. We're like, we're like, uh, uh, you know, when the ambassador of, of the president speaks in a foreign country, he's speaking on the authority of, of, the, of the president. He speaks with the weight of the president. He's not the president. The right. president makes the rules and he just submits to them. That's what we're doing. That's what local churches do. They're acting as ambassadors, speaking on behalf of the king. And they're uh, speaking the word of the king and protecting the people of the king. Protecting the witness of the king, promoting the progress of the gospel among the nations. Other questions so far? We we have a few more minutes and I'll I'll cover some things. Chris? So it sounds like um, our our true confession of our, our salvation is not just something between me and God. It is not. So the other members, we all have responsibility for each other. <clears throat> yeah, this, this idea that's really part and parcel of just Western individualism, that really my relationship with Jesus is between me and Jesus, is not true, according to Jesus in Matthew 18 and the rest of the pages of the New Testament. He calls, he calls his church to be uh, an, an authority, which is actually why you don't you don't join a local church, you submit to a local church. 
And it's also why it's important that the local church be comprised of believers only. Because you don't want to turn over the keys to a bunch of goats. And that's, I mean, I really mean that. It's a bit of a joke, but I really mean it. That's also why it's important that the church be led by biblically qualified elders. Because leadership is still needed. This is not just mob rule. Jesus tells his congregation to follow the leaders. The leaders are to lead the church in their exercise of the keys. And the church should not rebel or, or, or buck up against the leadership of its leaders unless she is unless the leaders are leading in a way that's directly contrary to Scripture. The church should follow the leadership of their elders. So there is real leadership that is needed. Uh, and but there's real but there's real significant authority and responsibility vested in the members. Why do you think we think membership is such a big deal? Like the responsibility you have for one another's lives, for the doctrine of redeeming grace, is a pretty big deal. Right? It really is. Other questions? Well, let me say this. What about the elders' authority? I mean, I already just kind of touched on it, but I mean, there's just there's verses uh, that talk about the elders' authority. The elders' authority is a real thing, um, and I'm sure that you've seen churches where there's no godly authority that's exercised, and the congregation descends into bitter disputes over whether they paint the the, the building white or you know or brown, and so they have to hire a consultant, and the consultant, in all of his or her genius wisdom, decides on tan. Uh, you know, um, so you know, never mind. Um, but anywho, um, there really is leadership that's needed. So what do we make of the elders' leadership? Well, the elders are to lead the congregation in its exercise of the keys. The elders are to lead the congregation largely through preaching and teaching and their example of a godly life. The leader's life should be such as to where the congregation says, that's that's, that's a man that I need to follow and who's worthy of emulation. And, and leaders lead by virtue of their preaching and teaching and by virtue of the, the moral weight of their life. And the congregation is, is called to submit to their leaders and remember their way of life because it leads somewhere and you should be following them. And then elders' leadership should be respected and followed unless they are acting in a way that is contrary to Scripture. So let me give you a little teaser about what's up next time. And I don't have my stuff. Toot. Uh, I had a little reminder of where we're moving next. Um, Where we're moving next is uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to talk more about how this actually works, right? Just going to talk a little bit more about how this actually works, how it works. We essentially do business at Redeeming Grace in this way. We recognize your authority. Let's Let's just think about this. When we make decisions in regards to leaders, you're involved significantly. When we make decisions regarding doctrine or changes to our constitution, you're involved significantly. When we make decisions in regards to hiring, firing, you're involved significantly. We want to make some tweaks to recognize the fact that you're actually not involved significantly in regards to leadership, doctrine, and membership. You're actually the ultimate authority. So we want to make some changes in our constitution to recognize that. And I realize you have questions about that, and we're going to, 
as we work on this constitutional revision, essentially our constitution is just a bit older at this point and doesn't reflect exactly how we do business in some ways. It just needs to be revamped. And so uh, we're obviously going to put that out for you and talk to you about that and give you opportunity to think about that and dialogue about that. But this lays the theological structure as to so that you know, well, where's this coming from? Well, it's, it's coming from what we understand about Baptist conviction. Uh, that's where it's coming from. So we're out of questions. I'm up here if you have any, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next week as we flesh this out some more. Thank you so much for coming.